Christmas. Christmas carols. So our series is called Carols. And so we're into week three of the series. And the cool part about it is that we've, we've been able to actually allow the Christmas carols to usher us into the Christmas season, but we let the carols also be the inspiration for the Sunday morning message. Because the cool thing about most of the Christmas carols is that they are founded in Scripture. They've got their basis in the Word of God. So this week, we we get to study from away in a manger. That's going to inspire the studying, studying for today. So the song, first published in a Lutheran Sunday school curriculum back in 1885. Um, There's a lot of controversy over the authorship. There were a whole bunch of people claiming that Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, like the guy you know from the 60s, but Martin Luther, the guy from the Great Reformation, was the actual author. But as they've studied manuscripts and looked back, they, there's nobody that can actually confirm that. So the authorship of Away in a Manger remains a mystery even today. Uh, for me, I don't really care. I'm sure the person that wrote it, maybe they care. No, they're actually, since it was published in 1885, they're dead. So they don't care either. Yeah. But what I do care about is the song itself. Because there are, there are cool things in the song that lead us to remember just what it is we're doing as we put up colored lights and Christmas trees and we buy gifts. It helps us to maintain a focus on Jesus. It's the birth of Jesus that we celebrate. It's the birth of Jesus that's a reason for this holiday. And this song helps us to have a focus and some cool perspectives on exactly who Jesus is. So, so first you think about, you know, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, little Lord Jesus. And you picture this little brand newborn infant. And that in itself is just precious. It is. But then if you really listen to the words, there's another dynamic. There's another dimension. There's another perspective. Because he's called little Lord Jesus. We're, we're going to have a focus on the word Lord. All right. The, the, the word Lord is used in the New Testament 740 times. And I think any word that God uses about the person of Jesus 740 times in the New Testament, we ought to figure out what the heck it means, right? So, so I want you to start thinking about that even now. As you think about Jesus and think about Jesus as Lord, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? So we've been camping out in Luke chapter 2. It's basically the reading of the historical event where Jesus was born on that wonderful holy night. I'm going to take us right back into Luke chapter 2 again. And if you were here last week, right back to the things that that scary angel had to say to us. Luke 2, beginning at 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. I want you to, like, like in your mind, highlight, underline, bold the word all. It will be for all people. For today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is just one of the 740 times Lord is used 
of Jesus. So, what's that mean? As you consider Jesus and the Christian faith and who you are and where you are in that faith, what exactly in practical terms does it mean for Jesus to be to be Lord? I mean, if you're one who has made a decision to be a Jesus follower, you're one who has said that he is my Lord. And it makes sense to me that you ought to actually know what that means. When he became Lord, I don't know if if many of you, if you came to faith later in life as I did. I mean, that moment where I made a decision to be a Jesus follower is vivid in my memory. And so I wonder if you're kind of like me and you remember your before time. And then you remember your after Jesus time. Did claiming Jesus as Lord actually make a difference in your life? As you... As you think about marriage, if you're a married person, is your marriage different post-Lord Jesus than it was pre-Lord Jesus? Did it impact how you do your marriage relationship? Maybe you're not at that marriage place yet. we got a lot of college students that call Faith Mountain home. And so you're in that dating phase of life. How does Jesus, being your Lord, impact and affect the way you do dating? Or does it? Should it? Maybe you're one of the younger among us and you got your little buzzwords worksheet there and you're going along. And and, and this may sound silly, but the reality is if Jesus is your Lord, how does it impact how you do recess? Seriously, how does Jesus being your Lord impact how you treat other kids that you come in contact with? How does Jesus being Lord make a practical impact on our lives? How about buying Christmas presents? Do you buy Christmas presents differently now than than before? Lord, In order to understand it, I think we have to define it. We have to know where it comes from. Most of you probably know that the New Testament was not written in English. Although we Americans like to think it's always been the world's number one language. The reality is the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word translated Lord that comes from the Greek is the word kurios. Kurios. Now, I don't even know if that's the right pronunciation because it's a dead language. There's nobody around that speaks it anymore. So we just get to make stuff up. Like when you're pastors, you get to make stuff up. So I'm making curious. You could call it curious, but then it's too much like curious. So, man, that was a weird bunny trail. I didn't, that's not in my notes. Curious. Lord. It's more important that we understand the different definition that comes with the word. So, so Lord means to have supreme authority. If you are the Lord of someone, you have supreme authority authority over them. If you are the Lord of someone, you have complete control of them. When we become Jesus followers, and I know I can't be the only one in here that's ever said this. Oh, Jesus is Lord of my life. You've said that. Some of you, I know you have. Jesus is Lord of my life. And it's absolutely positively, no kidding, it's true. But what 
does it mean? Jesus is Lord of my life. The, the problem is that, that it can become just this philosophical like concept. Jesus is Lord of my life. So, so I want to take us out of the philosophical and let's go to practical. Let's replace the word Lord with its definition. Jesus is the supreme authority of my life. Does that change anything for you? Jesus is the supreme authority. He is the ruler. He's the decider. Jesus is the, oh, this is going to kill some of you, the controller of my life. All the control issue people just laughed. See, the problem with saying someone else has control of your life is that they have competition. Because if we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is supreme authority, Jesus is the controller of my life, you know who he competes with for control? You. Me. Your wife, your kids, all these people who have a claim on you. Jesus is supreme authority. Jesus is controller. So for the control freaks in the room, you are going to struggle with today's message. And, and, and I'm going to give you a, a, little, a little story here. All right. While I won't go so far as to call him a control freak, our pastor of student ministries has control issues. See, the ones that are laughing, you know I'm right because you know him. So, so Pastor Mitch and I took a one-day trip about a week ago, and we took a trip to Utah, and we were going to Utah because one of our church planters, one of our brand new church starts is in Utah. And so a team of us from here went there to see how we can better support Lauren and his new church uh, in the Salt Lake City area. You see, we are absolutely committed to church multiplication here. We believe that starting new churches is the most effective way to reach people who are far from Jesus and bring them close to Jesus, right? We are not currently in the process of planting our own church, so we like to support churches that are being planted. And so that's why we took this trip out there. Anyway, as we were making arrangements to go on this trip, we were leaving early in the morning. We had to meet here at 6 a.m. We got back about 11 o'clock that night. And I suggested to Mitch, hey, let's just meet at the church and drive together. And he goes, great idea, I'll drive. And, and, and great idea, I'll drive. Usually there's a little bit of, great idea. Hey, you want me to drive? Oh, no. Great idea, I'll drive. And he explains to me on the way to the airport, he goes, I just, man, I just like to be in control. All right? Um, I just like to be the one driving the car. And I didn't take any offense with that. Like, you know, I didn't think he was calling me a bad driver, but what he was saying is that he's a better driver than anybody else in the entire state of Colorado, obviously. Yeah. Now, I didn't know just how deep the control issues went until we got to Salt Lake. And we picked up the rental van, right? And the guy that rented the van is going to be the driver of the van, and Mitch begins to shake. And then Paul, the driver, says, hey, I need somebody to sit up front shotgun and they're going to be the navigator to which Mitch goes shotgun. And that wasn't because he knew his way around Salt Lake. It's because if I can't be the driver, I want to be the one telling the driver where to go. It's a control issue. We all have a little bit of that control thing 
in us. We do. We want to be in control. Most of us don't want anyone else telling us what to do. I can almost guarantee anyone in here that was raised with siblings, right? You've got brothers and sisters. And as you grew up, my guess is you have said this more than once. So, so there's a situation and mom and dad aren't at home and one of your siblings says, go and do this. And your response to that sibling was, I don't think so, homie. You ain't the boss of me. You ain't the boss of me. I don't have to do what you tell me. It seems like we never outgrow that, do we? See, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, or even if you haven't, and you one day do, and I desperately hope that you one day do choose Jesus as your Lord. I think it's important that we understand what being under the Lordship, under supreme authority, under the control of Jesus Christ means. See, because he's already Lord, right? We do not make Jesus Lord. He was born that way. God made him that way. He's been Lord forever. No, what happens is when we make a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ... We invite him to be Lord of our lives. We invite him to be the boss of us. We invite him to tell us what to do. And then we're obligated to do what Jesus says do. So we're going to spend our time this morning on this concept of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at little Lord Jesus And we're going to look at Lord in two different perspectives. The first one is what I call Lord with a little L. Little Lord Jesus, who is Lord with a little L. We've spent some time in Luke this month. We've been in Luke chapter 2. If you just go four chapters later, um, in Luke chapter 6... Luke is recording Jesus' teaching about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. He's teaching about the behaviors that each and every one of us should have or should aspire to. He, he talks about things like loving your enemies. Don't just love those who love you. Don't just love your family and friends, but love those who hate you. Well, that's easy. I can do that. He starts talking about forgiveness. And and not only does he say we have to forgive people, he says we have to forgive all people all the time for all the stuff that those idiots did to us. He talks about things like turning the other cheek, which is never an easy thing to do. It's much more natural to retaliate when someone attacks us. All these behaviors... We should aspire to as Christians. Now, I bring that up because he just taught about all these behaviors. And then in verse 46, he says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? He just got through outlining what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And can you hear the frustration of our Lord Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I ask you to do? You follow me around, you sit at my feet, you listen to my words, and you shout out, come on now, preach it, brother. Oh, yeah, give you an amen on that one. I don't know if Jesus' followers did that, but I thought it'd be kind of cool if they did. 
But then you give him all the amens and all the come on nows. And that's right, brother. And then do absolutely nothing that I've asked you to do. See, it appears there were people in Jesus' day that called him Lord, but didn't act as if he were Lord. I call it Lord with a little L. See, they were just paying him lip service. Many people followed Jesus for what he could do for them. They didn't follow Jesus to listen, learn, and do what he asked them to do. You see, he fed 5,000 people, and they liked free food. So they followed for more free food. They were sick, and they needed healing, and he was really good at that. So they followed him for what he could provide for them, but didn't pay a lick of attention to how he asked them to live their lives. Craig Rochelle, absolutely one of my favorite authors, incredible pastor, leads a church in Oklahoma called Life Church, wrote a book, and we did a series several years ago called Christian Atheist, and I just love the tagline. Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you believe in God? And does the life you live reflect the belief you have? I think there's a little Christian atheist in all of us. See, we invite Jesus to be Lord. We invite Jesus to be master. We invite him to be controller of our lives. But if we're going to be really, really honest, and I'm going to ask you to be really honest today, not necessarily with me, but between you and God. If we're going to be really, really honest Pretty much every one of us have one or more areas of our lives that we refuse, we loathe to give control to Jesus over those areas of our life. We trust Him! Well, with some things, but not necessarily with with all things. And it's like, like, okay, I know Jesus says forgive everyone, every time, for all their stuff. And I do that. For the most part. But, but there's that one person who's wrong, was so wrong, that forgiving them would just be wrong, right? I know Jesus said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I don't love money, but I need stuff, right? i got to take care of me, Right? My money is to take care of me and the family that I've got. Now, dang sure ain't giving any of it away until I got me. All worked out. I know I'm supposed to spend time with, with God and read my Bible and pray and stuff. <laughs> but I'm a busy guy or girl. That describes everyone in this room. There's nobody's life that isn't stupid busy. I just don't have time i'm a college kid and it's finals week and i pray like i I always pray like at meals and and i always pray at finals time because the reality is some of you ain't gonna pass that final exam without a miracle yeah here's the point I i could keep going i could keep play acting up here all of the different things that people fail to turn over to god there are no shortage of things that jesus said do that some of us are unwilling to do there's no shortage of things that jesus said don't 
that some of us are unwilling to don't. And if I continue through the litany, I'm going to hit each and every one of us right where we live. I'm going to hit each and every one of us in that place where we have failed to give up control. So, so there's a verse in the Bible that hopefully God forgives me. If not, there's going to be a lightning bolt and the service will be over. But I've rewritten this verse to reflect how the sometime Christian does Christianity. It's in Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 6. This is the little L version of the Bible. Trust in the Lord with some of your heart and lean on your own understanding. In some of your ways, acknowledge Him and then you can make your own paths straight. Yeah, so for those of you who may not have noticed, this is dripping with sarcasm, okay? This is not what the real Bible says in that real verse. But there is a reality that some of us live that reality in our Christian faith. Many of us live partially surrendered lives. And we don't look any different, honestly, from the unsurrendered life. We treat Jesus as a part-time Lord and we act like part-time Followers. You know, when he said, take up your cross and follow me, I think he meant pick it up and don't put it down. I'm pretty sure he didn't expect that we would ever put the cross down. But but the reality is we come across some teachings that say do or they say don't that we don't happen to agree with. And in that moment, we lay down the cross because I'm not going to do what Jesus said do in that particular circumstance because because I just don't. Agree with it, but I'm pretty sure when Jesus became supreme authority, when Jesus got control of your life, he didn't say we got to pick and choose. He said, if you want to find true life, you got to lose the one you're living now. It has to change. It's got to look completely different in the after than it did in the before. Give it up. Surrender it. Don't only say he's Lord of your life, but make him. Lord, give him control. See, he's the one who says what's right. And he's the one who says what's wrong. And if he truly is your Lord, then the only reasonable response is to obey. Don't call me Lord and then refuse to do what I say too. So, I'm going to ask you to do something a little later this morning, but I'm going to tell you about it now so you can begin to consider, you can begin to think and maybe process. We're going to take some time at the end of the service where I'm going to ask you to just be very open with God. Not with anybody else in here. This is all going to be between you and Him. But, but I want you to consider asking some questions just very prayerfully. I want you to ask God, what is it that I have failed to surrender to you? What area of my life, Lord, am I still trying to control? What area am I just unwilling to give you? And that, that could be, gosh, it's going to be a number of different things depending on who you are and where you're at. But I want us to be really, really open really honest before God and actually put a name to what, whatever it is. 
See, for, for some of us, it, it may be, all right, I'm going to trust God with all of these things, but not my relationship life. You see, love is a personal thing. And I'm going to date who I want to date. I'm going to live with who I want to live with. I may be dating the wrong person by God's standards. I'm willing to admit that. I'm going to do what I want to do because it's my life and I get to decide who I love. For others, for others, man, I think and I think there's a lot of people like this. I'm going to give God control of all these other things. But the future, I got the future all mapped out. Like, I got this. I got this. You see, I'm going to do my life my way. And here's the plan. See, I'm going to graduate, like, right here. And then after I graduate, I'm going to go to this college. When I go to that college, I'm going to get this degree. And this degree is going to open the door for that perfect job. Then I'm going to get the job because they're obviously going to see I'm perfect for the job because I've had a plan all along. And see, I'm going to get married when I'm 26. I'm going to have 2.5 kids, and I'm going to drive a Beamer. And there ain't never going to be a minivan in my house. Ever. So God, just go ahead and kind of approve of and adopt my plan. I got it all figured out. For others, the Lord of your life is a substance that is destroying you and those around you. And I can say that from personal experience because I had that substance thing in my life that was destroying me and everyone around me. The problem is... We think we like whatever that substance is and we are not willing to give it up to our God. For many of us, and this is just, it's just a function of being an American and living in an affluent society. The reality is it's money. And I just want to share a story with you about a a young man that was in my life group a couple of years ago. Brand new Christian. Had just been baptized over that summer. And he told me one night after group, because we were going through a series about just just talking about generosity and growing to be more generous and how God loves a cheerful giver, all that kind of stuff. And he came up afterwards, and to his credit, he says, I just can't give. I just can't. I work hard for my money. That's what he couldn't surrender. He said, I love coming to church. I love the music. I'm learning a lot of cool stuff. My family loves to hear. My kid gets loved on in children's ministry. I just have a hard time giving because I work hard for my money. Now, think of the courage it took to tell your pastor that after he's been teaching on generosity. I applaud that kind of courage and that kind of reality. I want this to be a place where we can, we can say the hard things. We can be real with one another. Because you see, I can't help that person if they're not real with me, so I know how to help. Well, I did tell him how much I appreciated the honesty and just asked him maybe to consider maybe the inconsistency of what he had just said. Because here's the reality. We have no trouble paying Comcast $100 a month. To entertain us. If, if you're in college, you have no problem giving up tens of thousands of dollars for that education that's going to get that perfect life of the 2.5 kids and the Beamer. Right? But we have a hard time 
giving to the church that connects us to God and invests in our lives and the lives of our families. That makes no sense. I told him it was something that he needed to pray about, and I would pray with him. And God will eventually change your heart. He's got a way of doing that. And then I asked him to think of it this way. Instead of seeing it as giving away my hard-earned money, what if he could instead see himself as investing God's money in himself and his own family? And the most important thing in their human lives, the relationship they have with their God. Anyway, giving is not my issue. Um, It was once upon a time. It was... Super hard. But over the years, God worked in my heart. And Winnie and I have actually gotten to a place where we love being generous. We love investing. We give to this church because we see the impact the church makes in the real lives of the real people in this community that we serve. This week is going to be a prime example. 1,500 families, over 3,600 kids are going to come through this church. And they're going to have Christmas. And they're going to hear about a Jesus that loves them. That's a vision. That's a mission. That's something I can invest in. I enjoy investing in that. We have two girls, there are two kids that we sponsor through World Vision and they live in Haiti. And we get letters from them every now and then and we get to see the pictures as they grow up. And I love the fact that we can invest in them. And they have a chance in life because we choose to give them a little bit of what God has trusted us with. Giving is not my issue. Time. I'm just going to be right up front with you. Time is my issue. Time is what I try to control. Time is what I hoard. Time is what I covet. You would think someone that does what I do for a living would pray a heck of a lot more than I do. You you would think someone who does what I do for a living would devour the Bible more than I do. I'm just going to be honest. I love the NFL and the NBA and, and I am a sports freak. And there's a whole lot of time I could and should be devoting to my God that I'm given to a different God. And that's the place for me today that i got to ask the Lord to help me with. Because I have a second God in my life. So what, what is it for you? I want you to begin to think about that. And we're going to finish up looking, looking at little Lord Jesus, not little L Lord, but capital L Lord. In fact, it's Lord in all caps because that Lord, well, that Lord is is this complete commitment, all in kind of mentality. Those of you that are poker players, you're going to get that all in. Of course, in a Baptist church, there's nobody here that gambles, right? Yeah. All in. I know you get it. Um, I can tell you that this is that life where Jesus is in complete and utter control. And you marvel in it, you revel in it, you adore it, you appreciate it. See, the way I look at it is Jesus is just a little bit smarter than me and he's always going to make smarter decisions for me than I'm going to make for me. It's full on, hold nothing back. My life doesn't belong to me, but it belongs to him. That kind of commitment. What does that look like to be all in for Jesus? The best way I can see is to look in the Bible and look at the people who are all in and see if we can take some lessons from them. The one 
for me that is the most all in of any character in the Bible is a guy named Paul. Paul in the New Testament, Paul. Paul who wrote a whole bunch. God inspired him to write a whole bunch of the New Testament that we have. He talks in the book of Romans about this concept of being completely and utterly committed to Christ. And the cool thing about Paul is he doesn't just write it down and talk it. But if you read through his life's history, you see that he lived what he taught. So Romans In chapter 14, beginning in verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, which I cannot say is true for me today. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. How many of us can honestly say we have that attitude in our lives? Today, whether I live or die, I live or die for little Lord Jesus. We belong to the Lord and the lives we live should reflect that we live for him. We belong to him. Our lives are not our own. We surrender to his lordship. And once again, it's really easy to to kind of have a philosophical mindset about that. We surrender to his lordship and we live for him. Let me let me draw a maybe an analogy that that might help cement this. I want you to think of your commitment to the Lord like a wedding ring. Most of us never, ever take these things off, right? I mean, for for most of you, it's because you're so crazy committed to the one that you pledged yourself to that you couldn't imagine taking this off because it's a symbol of that love. Then there's a few of us that have had this on so long and we put on a couple extra pounds that it was out of hacksaw, it's not coming off. So 40 years, right? It just kind of stuck there. Here's here's the, the thought. When a wedding proposal takes place and a ring is offered and accepted, it's a free will choice, right? Because that person you propose to can say yes or they can say no. It's a free will decision. So when I bought that wedding ring for Winnie back in 1976, what did it cost her? I mean, literally, nothing. Not a red cent. I did the work. I earned the money. I went to the store. I paid for that ring. It didn't cost her anything. However, when she allowed me to slip that ring on her finger on our wedding day, what did it cost her on that day? Everything. Everything. Because that's what you're saying when you pledge yourself to one another. My life is no longer my own. I give me. I give all of me to you. She belongs to me. And I belong to her. I'm going to take you into the book of Ephesians to try and help you understand why a wedding and Jesus should be talked about in the same paragraph. I'm going to be in Ephesians 2 at verses 8 and 9. And this is going to come from the New International Reader's Version. It's a very, very simplified modern day translation, but I love how it presents the concept. God's grace 
has saved you because of your faith in Christ. I want you to hear that. Just like that wedding ring did not cost, cost my wife one red cent. God's grace saved us. It didn't cost us a thing. If you are a person who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that salvation costs you nothing. God's grace has saved you because of your faith in Christ. Your salvation doesn't come from anything you do. You didn't pay for it. You didn't do do good deeds for it. You didn't earn it in any way. It was given as an absolute, no kidding, free gift. The gift of salvation is offered to everyone. And it costs us absolutely nothing. Nothing. And yet, when he proposes... And you choose that free will decision to say yes or no. When you put on that wedding ring of Jesus Christ as your Lord, it now costs you everything. Because you belong to Him. From that day forward, you belong to Him. And the beauty is He belongs to you. In that moment... See, your life is no longer your own. And you agree to surrender to the Lordship, to the supreme authority, to the control of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to share with you Proverbs 3 as originally written. Because this is how a Christian life should be lived. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own Understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. You see, for the believer that's all in, that's what it looks like. Not the sometime believer, but the full time believer. And I just love, if you noticed on the NASB translation that I used up there, they automatically put LORD in all capital Letters. I didn't do that. It just comes that way. Capital L, all caps, Lord Jesus. So in that passage, there is one word that's, well, it's, it's translated as acknowledge. And so just as the New Testament was given to us in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word that's translated as acknowledge is the word yada, yada. And most other times in the Bible, what you'll find is that word is actually translated to know. I would personally prefer that the translators would use know because it's know in an intimate sense. It's know in the way a husband and a wife know one another. See, see, Christianity isn't about religion. It's about a personal relationship, an intimate knowing of God, an intimate knowing of little Lord Jesus, Right? So we could accurately translate that last part of that verse as in all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. See, here's the bottom line. The reason so many of us fail to surrender the things that we fail to surrender and we hang on to the things that we think we need to still control is we don't know Jesus to the depth. 
of intimacy that he desires to be known. Right? Those areas of our lives, we don't know him as well as we should know him. See, to know him is to love him. And to know him is to trust him. To know him is to obey him with all of our life. Not just some of it. And here's the deal. If we don't, if we can't. Now, none of us are perfect, all right? I want you to hear me well. There are none of us that are going to be perfect in how we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're still going to make some mistakes, right? But as long as we're committed to growing and getting better in the areas that we're not so good in, as long as we're committed to growing and getting better and trying to relinquish control to the supreme authority, those things we're trying to control, I think we know him. But if we are unwilling to do that, if there are places where Jesus says do and we just don't, or places where he says don't and we choose to do anyway, then we've got to ask ourselves a really serious question. Do I really know him? And more importantly, does he know me? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, last scripture I'll give you for the day. It's a Lord, Lord passage. Not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name did we not perform miracles? And Jesus replies to them, I never knew you. Let me translate that for the modern day. Didn't I go to church once in a while? Like Christmas and Easter for sure, man. Like consistently, like my, almost like, like a lot of my life. Didn't I get to the benevolence fund a couple of times like when they had a family that was in trouble? Didn't I help with VBS once? That's what's happening with these people that Jesus is speaking to right now. I didn't know you and you didn't know me. Because essentially your life was no different after you said you knew me than it was before. See, there's a really big difference in calling Jesus Lord and living a life that demonstrates he's Lord. He gave us a free gift of eternal life. And the only reasonable response is to offer the entirety of our lives back to him. Not my will, but your will. Right? Let me take whatever I'm still trying to control and surrender it to you, Lord. Because I want to trust you with all my heart. And I want to lean not on my understanding, but in all of my ways. I want to know you and allow you to make my paths straight. So we're going to close the service time by celebrating communion together. And this is that point where I told you I'd like you to spend some time considering some thoughts and some questions. See, when we do communion, one of the things we're doing is he tells us to remember the sacrifice he made for us. And we like to spend some time in kind of a cleansing prayer before coming to the Lord's table. And, and so during that time of, of prayer 
And I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen for you as you pray. I just want you to spend however much time you think you need to spend considering these questions. What is it that I have not surrendered to you, Lord? What area of my life am I still trying to control? And what is it I'm unwilling to give to you? And then I just want you to listen. Ask the Lord those questions and listen. The cool thing about God is that you ask those kind of questions and he tells you. I mean, there's a word that's going to pop into your mind and you're immediately going to know and you're immediately going to agree with God. Oh, yeah, I'm having trouble letting go of that. Oh, yeah, I really, really have a hard time letting you control that one. The cool thing is that once you know it, once you recognize it, once you admit it, then you spend a moment and say, Lord... I want to serve you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I, I, I do claim you as Lord. Now help me to make you Lord of all things, especially those things. And he's going to give us the way. He's going to give us the courage. He's going to give us the ability to slowly but surely relinquish control of those things we've been hanging on to so tightly. And I guarantee you when it's all said and done, our lives will be lived as richly and as fully as they can possibly be lived here on this earth. Because when you and I stop controlling us and we let him control us, there is nothing better that could possibly happen on this earth. So, I want to explain how communion happens here at Faith Mountain. We don't uh, require you to be a member of our church in order to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. You simply need to be someone who at some time in your life said, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You simply, simply need to be someone who, is, who has invited yourself into God's family by accepting Jesus. We have two stations in the front, two in the back. Um, after you spend some time in prayer, and Suzanne's going to start playing some really cool ambiance stuff. Um, right? Cool. See, here it comes. I don't know about you, but I think better when, when it's not too quiet in the room. So between you and God, what is it you're failing to give up? What is it you're hanging on too tightly to? What is it that when he says, you say, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I ask you to do. What is it for you? Pray it. Listen. Agree. When you get to that point, you're ready. I'd ask you to go to whichever station is close to you. Go ahead and get the elements. Take them back to your seat. And I'll lead us in taking those elements together. So right now, just pray. Just pray.
So we start thinking about communion. You know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And, and that's why we do it, to remind us of what he had done for us, the sacrifice that he made. Put yourself in the moment. Imagine that that last supper. See, Jesus knows that this is, this is the weekend. This is it. And he's sitting with those who he loves most. And they're actually talking about when the Lord passed over Israel and saved them from slavery. And, and he picks up the bread and he looks at his disciples and says, this, this bread represents my body. My body, which will be broken for you and for all mankind. Take and eat. imagine their bewilderment because they don't get it. They have no idea what's about to happen. And he takes the glass of wine and he says this cup represents my blood. It is to be shed for you and for all mankind for the forgiveness of sin. Take this all of you and drink. Well, a few days later, they would get it. They would know, they would understand that Jesus Christ became the once for always sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of the world. I regret my sin. And I am sorry that my sin put him on that cross. I am so, so grateful that he was willing to go. Let's just thank Him for forgiveness. Father, thank You so much that You were willing to step down out of heaven and into humanity just for us. I pray everyone here understands You would have done it just for them even if they were the only one who was to receive Your proposal to say yes, to accept You as Lord and Savior. You would have stepped out of heaven just for them. You would have allowed yourself to be beaten, crucified. You would have died just for them. But Lord, we remember that and we're grateful. And we remember the empty tomb, the resurrection, the defeat of death that opens the gates of heaven for all. Call on the name of Jesus to be Lord and Savior. We thank you. Amen.